All right, we're in our final weeks in the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament historical book. It's been a rich study together. I have been really encouraged uh, by our time uh, in this word. So I don't care about you, but I've, I've had a good time, and it's been really nice. Uh, Nehemiah chapter uh, 9, verse 38 is where we're going to begin this morning. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. You can go ahead and turn there. We have Bibles provided for you in the seats here so that if you don't have one at home, you can take that and just bring it home. We'd be just really glad for you to have a copy of God's Word in your house of your very own. So take that. Uh, to catch us up to speed, Nehemiah is a story about urban renewal. Uh, it's about a city, a city renewed by God and God using his people for his purposes in a very strategic location, uh, which is a city. And as we read through the scriptures, what we're going to see time and time again is that cities have a, a very specific place in the heart of God because cities are where the mass amount of people are. Uh, and so cities are there, lots of people are there, and because of that, uh, with the cities, they, they tend to be hubs for art and for education and for politics and for music and for information and for technology. And so cities, what ends up happening is emanating out of cities is, is culture and change in the regions that they represent and really even into uh, the entire world. And so as we read the Bible, we see that, that cities have a really special place on the heart of God, that God loves all people. He loves all towns and all places on the map. Cities just are very, very Strategic. We also, as we read the Bible, will see that as followers of Jesus, the story ends with us together in a city, God's holy city, collectively together, worshiping the Lord. And so this particular city that we look at today, uh, Jerusalem, is really the city of God. It was designed by God to be a city where God's people could live together and live in accordance with his will and his plans for them and where his mission would then launch out globally through this specific city. And so this is a really, really important city, the city of Jerusalem. But as we read the scriptures and as we read the Old Testament narrative, what we see is that God's people struggle, as we all do, and they fail to honor them, and they take the city down, really, spiritually, and therefore as well uh, physically. And so the city of God, as we've read at the beginning of the story, has been in disrepair for about 141 years until God begins to move in the hearts of one of his servants, strategically placed in Susa, the capital city of the major world empire of that day, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is there. He's cupbearer to the king. He's right there at the hand of the king working with him. And God says, I've got you here, Nehemiah. I've raised you up through the ranks of slavery. You're here and I'm going to use you to bring about the restoration of this city. And so under Nehemiah's leadership, the city is physically revived. And what we've seen up to this point in the story is that 50,000 people have moved back into the city after 140 years of being outside of the city, the city being in disrepair. Now, almost immediately, picture this, 50,000 people in the city, they've moved back in, and almost immediately, the first thing they seem to do is have this big, massive church service. And so in chapter 8, it says they get together, and they read the Bible, and they study the scriptures for six plus hours. That's insane. Six hours. How cool is that? And what they do is as they're reading the Bible, studying it for six hours, they learn about the Lord who they've been so distant from. They see that he is good and that he is gracious, that he has created all things, that he has given them his commands for them to live by, but that they have ignored these commands. And so as a result, as we saw last week in chapter 9, they begin to pray and they begin to confess their sins and they turn back to the Lord. 
And what we need to think about is the fact that we can relate with these people, that we too have sinned against the Lord. The scripture says that the wage of sin, or what we have earned because of our sin, is death. But it goes on and it says, but our God is so good and so loving and so gracious that he comes to earth as one of us, living in our shoes, living our life, and was without sin. So he doesn't earn the wage of sin, death, but he dies, taking on our sin and taking on our punishment for us so that if we would trust in him and his death, burial, and resurrection, then that gets exchanged for our death and death eternally. If we would trust in him, if we would place faith in him. And so if we, like these people we're reading about here in Nehemiah, would turn back to the Lord, confess our sin, and say, I need you, I need what you've done, I trust in you, then we could be made right. That God's judgment, which is just, it's not that he's an unjust God, just a mean God, he's just, and we want justice except for when it's applied to us, right? God's justice is served in himself, in himself, in that he takes on the punishment. I told you this before, but I remember the day when my, uh, my oldest son was watching his little brother get in trouble, and we had, like the day prior, been talking about this whole idea of God taking on our punishment for us, and he goes, Dad, I'll go to, I'll go to the room instead of him. I'll take his punishment for him, because Jesus didn't. Uh, I think really he just wanted to go in the room and play with his toys, but he was, and help his brother out, but he's, he's starting to get it. He's starting to get it, and so what we see is the, the freeing, good, life-changing message of Jesus, even in the Old Testament, that all of the scriptures say, all of the scripture Jesus says points to him, to him. And so we see that even in the book of Nehemiah. And so we spent a, a couple of months seeing how the city has been physically rebuilt, revived. And for the past few weeks, we start to look at how the, the city is spiritually revived. It's, it's starting to become spiritually Revived. And we've seen great evidences of this in that, first of all, they're very hungry for the scriptures. They, they, they want to hear what God has to say to them. And then we saw last week, it's evidenced by the fact that they're turning from their sin in accordance with the scripture and they're beginning to walk with the Lord. This week, here's what we see. We see them take really practical steps to ensure that it doesn't happen again. We see them take really practical steps to ensure the continued spiritual health of their faith community. And so what they do, the way that we want to as well ensure the the spiritual health of our faith community as they do is through this one word. It's a word called covenant. And you read this word throughout the scriptures, and it refers to a unique, special relationship. Now, in order to explain this word covenant, I want to take you back in time about 10 years. And ladies, you'll enjoy this. Men, bear with me. We'll talk about my, my wedding day here. I, I stood at the altar in western Massachusetts. I was out of my mind nervous. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever been so nervous in my entire life. It, all eyes on me and her. It was just really, really, really insane for me. And I, I'll just tell you, my nervous tick when we were dancing at the uh, reception was I just, I was so nervous, I just kept kissing her. And it looked like I was, I was like a woodpecker or something during that. You watch the video, I'm just... It was, I don't know what I, just how it worked for me. And uh, so 10 years ago, I remember standing at the altar, and the doors fling open, and this gorgeous woman that's so out of my league comes walking down the aisle with her father gripping her really tight, still kind of uncertain. No, we're good. But he comes walking down the aisle, and I remember on that day, 
It was so much more than a formality. It was so much more than a show. It was so much more than pomp and circumstance. It was so much more than just another excuse to party, a, a hoop we jumped through. It was a day that we together exchanged covenant promises. That we made vows and promises to each other before the Lord and with all of these witnesses. Now, at that time in my life, I had all kinds of relationships, as you do. I mean, all kinds of relationships from family members to friends to the unique bond of college buddies to childhood friends to old teammates to, to mentors. Uh, I mean, all, all kinds of relationships I had, as, as I'm sure you do as well. And I, I would just venture to say that I think I do a decent job at being a good friend and a good family member and a good mentee and a good childhood friend and call back on these people every now and again and, and, and check up. On them, I mean, I think the Lord wants us to be committed in all of our relationships. I mean, that's pretty, pretty clear. But I've never entered into a covenant with one of my teammates, you know? I've never stood somewhere with a teammate and said, I, Josh, take you, Bubba, to be my lawful wedded teammate, to have and to hold the block and to pass from this day forward until graduation do us part. I never did anything like that. It's it's entirely different kind of relationship when you covenant in marriage with somebody. God wants us to be committed in all of our relationships. The difference is that a covenant relationship, as seen in Scripture, is one of the most special relationships. It's a it's a unique relationship of of oneness and of love and of affection. One that has benefits, but one that also has commitments or obligations. And where other relationships naturally, with just the ebb and flow of life, will come and go, a covenant relationship is a very unique and, and lasting relationship. And so on that day, I entered into a covenant relationship with Becky. And we will be in this relationship, I'm telling you, until death do us part. The scriptures speak of marriage as a covenant. As a covenant. And the scriptures will speak of our relationship with God and with his people as a covenant. And here's how this applies to us. God wants us, as we see in the scriptures here today, to be in a special kind of relationship with him and with his people. And as Christians, he wants us to be in a unique relationship with him and with his church family. And so let's, let's look at this, chapter 9, 38. Chapter 9, 38. And it says, because of all this, Because of all what? Because of all they've learned about God as they're reading the scriptures, as we've read in the previous two chapters, how they learned about his power, about his creation, about his love for them, about his commandments, and because of their recognition that they've been sinful and have not been following the Lord, and because of their desire to be faithful to the Lord forever and ever and ever. Because of all this, what? Because of all this, we make a firm, give me that word, covenant. They make a firm covenant in writing. And in the original language, the word for covenant uh, here is not the one that's usually used in the scriptures for covenant. This is a less frequently used word for covenant, one that really takes on a special focus on faithfulness. And the point for us is faithfulness, faithfulness. 
faithfulness. I don't want to take the scripture too far and, and directly overlap this with every aspect of our situation today, but I want us to see the principle is faithfulness to the Lord and his people. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. And they write on what? Verse 38, on a sealed document. It has a seal on it. It's notarized, right? It's official. They are serious about this. Serious about the Lord. And on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Chapter 10, verse 1. And on the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah. So let's stop here. Nehemiah does what? He signs first. He takes the lead. I will lead the charge in faithfulness. He's led this charge all along the way. Leaders, there's all kinds of types of leaders in this room today. Leaders, as a leader, you take the charge. You take the lead. Which also means not just you're setting an example, but you're stepping into the battlefield first, right? So you put yourself at the most risk. Nehemiah is saying, I'm taking the lead. I'm going to sign this thing first. And then verses 1 through 27 goes on, and it lists all of the people who sign this covenant. And then the remainder of the chapter, what we get is the terms of the agreement. The terms of the agreement. So let's read uh, beginning in verse 28, and we'll read 28 and 29 as we begin to look at the, the terms of the agreement. It says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do the commandments of our Lord and his rules and his statutes. So, Here's what it tells us. It tells us that all of God's people, all of them, not just the leaders, all of God's people make this covenant. We've got the priests, so we translate that over today to the pastors. We've got the Levites, we translate that over today to deacon types in the church, men and women who have really servant leadership in the church, to temple servants, so that would be the equivalent of, say, church support staff, ministry assistants, interns. We have the gatekeepers, it says. So uh, we talked along the way about how gates really represent entrances into neighborhoods. And so perhaps today our gatekeepers would be our community leaders, our, our, our connection group leaders. And so those are the, the gatekeepers. Um, the singers, so these are our, our, our worship band people here. Uh, they're, they're leading the people in worship. And then it says, and all, all who have separated themselves from peoples of the land. So this is everyone who has moved back into Jerusalem to separate themselves from the people of the lands of their wives, their sons, their daughters, entire family. You see the overlap today? You see that? All of these people enter into a covenant. And in the book of Nehemiah, what we're going to see is we're going to see uh, time and time again that there's a variety of people involved in this project with all kinds of unique giftings, but they're all together working in great unity for this project. Today, that would be us. We're all different, different ages, different races, different uh, native lands and, and countries and states and cities different giftings, but we're all together as a family working on this project that God has given us that is connecting Boston and beyond to Christ. That's what we're doing together. And in our church, what we do is we ask people who are ready to really move into a deep commitment with the Lord and the church family to sign 
a covenant. To acknowledge that, yes, we believe that the church is the bride of Christ. It's the love of Christ's heart, of his life. And the church is so important to him. Therefore, it will be equally important to me. And so what we do as a church is we invite people to enter into a covenant church membership. And then, like we see here, our leaders sign the document. Our people sign the document we say that this is not just going to be something that we just do. Church is not another thing we do, another commitment in our lives. This is the bride of our Lord Jesus. We are deeply committed to the church. Deeply committed to the church. Now, so look in the scriptures, we begin to dive into the covenant obligations that they lay out. And there are four of them. And they translate, I think, into the types of commitments that God wants for us today. And I believe that we can learn a lot from their covenant. And so what I want to see today is some commitment principles from their their covenant. Now, look at me. I am fully aware that I'm treading some dangerous waters right now. Like You're not going to read a church growth manual that says, hit them up with a talk about commitment because they really want to be committed to the church. You're not going to read that anywhere. Today... Commitment freaks people out. If you're like me, you think about your schedule and you're like, there there ain't no way I can commit to another thing. Let me say this. This is not another thing. This is the church. This is the the church of God. I'm not talking about a fraternity, a sorority, fellowship, a job, neighborhood organization, a civic organization. We're talking about a living, breathing organism of people who God has said, I will do this. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's what we're talking about here. We want to look at this, even though it's kind of dangerous. It might freak you out. You want to hear about this. You do want to hear about this. Because here's what I know in my own experience. People don't like to hear about commitment. But let me spin it this way, because this is what you do want to hear about. You do want to hear about how you can live for something that's bigger than yourself. You do want to hear about how you can allow your life and your time on this earth to be leveraged for something that will last well beyond when you die, something that will last into eternity. So I'm calling you to commit to something that matters. Commit to something that matters. I feel the pressure of a lack of time. I feel the pressure of a lack of sleep. I feel the pressure of the lack of emotional currency to give to one other thing. I feel like I can't spin another plate. I just can't. I I get it. But if this book is true, is there anything more important than being committed to the Lord and to his bride, the church? I don't think so. So four commitment principles for the remainder of our time together. And here's the first one. Biblical obedience. First one is biblical obedience. Look at verse 29. All the people commit themselves to what? To walk in God's law. We're going to commit ourselves to walk in God's law, they say, that was given by Moses the servant, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. And so they start by declaring, we are going to live by the book. We're going to live by this book. Ultimately, a Christian is a person who believes the book. Because the book tells us who Jesus is, who the Lord is, and who we are to put faith in. So 
ultimately, we're people who live by the book. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God. And so we're saying we believe that these are the very words of God recorded so that we can know Him and we can know who He is and how He wants us to live. And so we see this book is something that's massive. It's, it's so important. You can judge any faith by its book. And this book stands firm. This book is not one person's opinion like a lot of the other faiths out there. This book is 40 plus authors, three continents, three languages over a period of 1,500 years saying one story. How does that happen? It's when God speaks through his people. This book is powerful. This is the word of God. It is authoritative. And we as believers say that we believe that this is the ultimate authority. We trust in this authority. We don't say that it's the only authority. What I mean by that is we can learn truth from science. We can learn truth from psychology. You can learn truth in other places. But this is the ultimate authority. This is the ultimate authority. And all those other things really do, as you you study, really jive with the Scriptures. With God's creation design the sin in people's heart and the brokenness as to why we feel the way we feel and think the way we think and act the way we act. It all supports the ultimate authoritative truth, the the Scripture. Now, here's what many people do today, and I'm not pointing fingers. I'm guilty of this as well. Many people will do this. We'll read through the book, and we'll read something we like. Okay, I'll obey that. And then we read on through the book, and we read something that we don't like, and then suddenly we change our approach to Scripture. You know what I mean? Like we say, okay, well, um, I think what the author meant was actually this. Or I think what the author was saying was only culturally appropriate then and probably not today. So, for, for example, and I'll make a lot of friends with this one. We like love your neighbor as yourself, right? We read that? Check? Okay, cool. I can do that. Not that we do it well, but we, oh yeah, of course, I'll, I'll, I'll obey that. We don't like flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We don't like that one so much, right? And so we start to rationalize, well, what must have been meant was what he was probably saying was culturally... um, because it's a hard one. Now, what came to mind when you first read that? Get your hands off each other, right? And that's what it's saying. Flee sexual immorality. Some of the best evidence that I've seen in people that proves that God is moving in their heart is when they start to obey the commands of Scripture that are hard to obey. I mean, that's when I say, man, God is doing something. There are a lot of hard commands in the Scripture. We're going to read in the, the Scripture that God says, listen, flee sexual immorality. I'm pleading with you guys. We are in Boston. I get it. There's a lot of young people. Flee sexual immorality until you've covenanted in marriage. And here's what it really ultimately comes back to. It ultimately comes back to faith and trust belief where you say God I know this is hard but I trust you 
I believe that you've got my best interest in mind in laying out this command. And he does. God knows the proclivity of men to treat women as objects and to abuse them, count them as property, to get out of them what they wish and to discard them. He says, no, that's not happening. I want you to covenant in marriage and say, I'm with you till death do us part. And then, I think the scripture is really, really clear. And then, I have a great gift waiting for you. I have a great gift waiting for you. But you have to see that gift as treasured and protected because it's inside of a a covenant. And it's hard, but a Christian is a person who says, I believe the book, I will live by the book, I will observe the book, and I will trust Jesus and what he calls me to. So let me ask you, do you believe the Bible? We're going to live by the Bible? Will you obey when the Bible is, is hard? For better or for worse, for sickness or in health, you're covenanting with the Lord that I'm going to, I'm going to honor this no matter what, I'm going after it. I'm not perfect, but I trust you, God. I trust your words and I'm with you. Biblical obedience. That's what they say they're going to do, and that's what we need to say we're going to do as well because we're believers. Here's our next commitment principle. It's this. Familial commitment. The family. Look at verse 30 with me. It says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So they say this. Here's the next thing that they say. They say, listen, we are going to ensure that our daughters will marry boys who love the Lord. We will not let our daughters marry boys from other nations, and we will also not take in ladies from other nations for our sons. Now, let me clarify again, because we talked about this last week, so if you weren't here, I want to make sure you're not freaking out right now. This is not a racist covenant commitment. As you trace the historical uh, narrative and the story throughout Israel, what they would do is they would often intermarry into other nations and then they would adopt the faiths of these other nations and they would forsake the one true God and take on, absorb their other little false gods that would lead them straight to hell ultimately. And so they're recognizing and making this as a covenant promise. They're recognizing, listen, I... I know what's got us into this mess in the first place, into this spiritual condition where the judgment of God comes upon us and we're uh, now in other nations in slavery through Babylon. So they say, listen, it's not going to happen again. We're going to protect our, our children. And the issue today is not race. It's not what nation you're from. It's not national allegiance. It's spiritual allegiance. It's do they follow Jesus? That's, that's ultimately the issue. And if they don't, explain to me how that's going to work out. Explain to me how that's going to work out when you marry somebody who's not a follower of the Lord. This person's passionate about Christ. This person is not passionate about Christ. This person spends Sundays with their church family. This person, I don't know, spends Saturday with their church family. These kids follow mommy. These kids follow daddy. These kids are confused out of their minds. There's disunity in the family. There's frustration in the family. There's confusion in the family. It's hard enough, right, if mom is a Red Sox fan and dad is a Yankees fan, right? 
But what if mom's on team Jesus and dad's on team Joseph Smith, right? I don't know what the Mormons' jerseys would look like, but that would just be, I don't know. It, it's just not going to work, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Now, here's what a yoke is. Maybe you've seen it hanging up on the side of a barn in central Massachusetts in a rural area. It looks really nice, and we use them as decoration today. But a yoke was the wooden piece that had the two humps in the middle to link two oxen together so that they could go forward in a mission, plowing or whatever it was that they were to do together. Now, imagine if you took that one yoke and you put an ox and you put a horse. You've got a short, fat ox and you've got a tall, thin horse working together in this yoke. What's going to happen? One, it's going to be incredibly uncomfortable for both of them. and They're just going to give up. Two, they start trying to do the mission of plowing or whatever it is. One's got a bigger stride, and so they're just going to go in circles and go nowhere. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Does that make sense? How are you going to move forward in the mission that I have given all people, that this is the mission of your life, the glory of God and seeing people restored to right relationship with God and have the hope of Jesus? How are you going to move forward in that if you're unequally yoked? God's saying, I don't want you to be uncomfortable in that you're, you're feeling the pain of an unsupportive spouse. God's saying, I want you to work together in tandem, this beautiful relationship that you both love the Lord and you're both moving forward and one is hurting, the other one's supporting. When one needs prayer, the other one's praying. You're working together. That's what God wants for you. That's what he wants for you. I'll never forget the day that my uh, kindergarten son came home from Boston Public. He says, Dad, so um, Ava wants to marry me. I'm like, well, say what? <laughs> What'd you say? I said, well, does Ava love Jesus? And he goes, I don't know. I'm like, all right, well, then don't worry about it. Next day he comes back, hey, Dad, Ava loves Jesus, I asked her. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, buddy. She's going to have to talk to me. <laughs> I want to hear it from her mouth. Give her a little theology quiz or something. Parents, we raise our kids to know and to love the Lord and ensure that after our short few years with them, that I walk her down the aisle, my little daughter, and hand her off to a man who also knows and loves the Lord. That's our responsibility because we know what's best for them. Because some of you can say from firsthand experience, trust me, it's hard, baby. It's so hard being unsupported in your marriage and your faith. I want what's best for you. I want, if I haven't done it, I want you to live in a way that honors the scriptures and that you would be equally yoked. The commitment is we're passing our faith on to our children. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it, Scripture says. To raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, Scripture says. These are Scriptures that, man, when I became a daddy, I started memorizing all these Scriptures. I've got to get this thing because I don't know what I'm doing. As you read through Scripture, you'll constantly hear these phrases. You hear phrases like the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You'll hear phrases like, tell it to your sons and to your son's sons. This idea of our faith needs to be generational and passed on from generation to generation to generation. Are you doing that? 
Are you ensuring that that's happening? For several years now, I've been praying for my grandkids. I hope that's further off than uh, sometimes it feels like. I feel like I'm aging very fast, especially since I started the church here. But I pray frequently for my grandkids because I just see the scriptures and say, tell it to your sons and to your sons' sons. Parents, how are you going to pass this down? Are you doing it right now? Or are there things that are far more important to you, like your career? Or that your kid might be a baseball star, succeed on the field, but fail in his faith? Be terrible. Future moms and dads, and some of you are out there, how are you going to ensure that you pass this down to your children? Be certain of this. If, if you're a nominal believer, your kids are not going to want it at all. They're going to see that you're not living out the real thing. And they're going to say, it didn't do anything for them. It was just a box they checked. Just a hoop they jumped through. But if you're passionately following the Lord Jesus, it's pretty natural. They're going to say, man, I want that. That transformed my mom. That transformed my dad. They deeply believe this. Familial commitment. That was a big commitment of these people. Here's their next one. The next one is sabbatical observance. Read verse 31. Look at verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So they say this. They say, we're going to honor the Sabbath, the Lord's day. We will honor it. One of the things that set God's people apart was the Sabbath. It set them apart. It's very unique. Exodus 20, verse 8. Because you will remember the Sabbath, you will keep it holy. That's a command of God. He's saying, take a day off. That's like your boss saying, listen, you better take a day off or I will fire you. You need to rest because you're going to be useless at work if you don't rest, right? I heard one pastor say that, listen, if you don't take a voluntary Sabbath, you will take an involuntary Sabbath. You will get broken and you will have to rest because you'll be laid out in the hospital with a heart attack. You seen that? Heart disease in our country going up. Makes sense. This command goes all the way back to creation. God makes all things in six days, and on the seventh day, what does he do? He rests. He rests. Because God was tired? No. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He rests because he's setting a precedent for you and for me. That I want you to, to rest. God's gift of the Sabbath is a wonderful thing, Exodus 28. I want you to rest. And on this day, you will gather with God's people, you will read the scriptures, you will sing, you will will focus in on me, and you will be refueled and recharged. You need it, I'm giving it to you, you better take it. It's my command. I'm commanding you to take a day off. Sounds great, huh? I wish my boss, I don't have one, I wish my boss, Jesus is my boss, Chief Shepherd, Bible says, Wish my boss, boss would tell me to take a day off. You feel that? Like, man, that would be great right now. Like, hey, just go. Take a day off. That would be awesome, right? God's saying it. But let me just say this. It's as much a discipline as it is a gift. 
I find 10 hours a day, seven days a week is not enough to do all the things that are before me. So I have to work at not working. You know what I mean? Take some, some training and some discipline. Ultimately, what I have to do is I have to trust God. That God, if I don't work today, you're going to let the world keep spinning. I think it's going to be all right. right? You feel that? It's a, it's a lack of trust in the Lord. For them, verse 31, everybody else is buying and selling and moving up the corporate ladder. And if I'm not working, I don't know, it's... I might not do all right in the, the corporate world. They're going to get one up on me. And God says, no, no, you trust me. While they're all doing that, I've got you. I'm faithful. Because this whole faith, is, is it about us earning and, and growing and achieving? No, it's about he did for us what we can't do. And that's what Sabbath is as well. It's trusting that you've got it when I don't have it. Trusting in the Lord. So you've got to work and not working. Now, for us today, as people under the new covenant, we've got to be careful not to be legalistic about this. We're not bound legally to the Mosaic law any longer. Galatians chapter 3, 25 says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer bound to the law. Or Romans 7, 6, we are now released from the law. So we are freed from the law because of our faith in Christ But these principles still stand. So many of the principles that we read in the Old Testament might not necessarily be directly binding to us, but the the principle still stands. And also many of the laws, though they might not in, in and of themselves be applied to us, they are applied to us because they're repeated in the New Testament, right? And so in the New Testament, we see Christians Sabbathing now on Sunday instead of Saturday, for example. Not the seventh day of the week, but the first day of the week because that's the day that Jesus resurrected from the grave. That's why scriptures will say on the first day of the week, we gather together, right? And so I don't want to be legalistic about this, but the principle is this. We should be committed to taking a day off, to resting, to being with God's people. That's why I don't, you know, if a church decides that we're going to do a Saturday night service because the church is blowing up and we just don't have space, I'm cool with that. I think the Bible's okay with that. We're not going to be legalistic about it. You need to take a day off. You need to be with God's people. You need to refresh. You need to say, God, you've got this. Even when I stop working, it's a very important commitment that we make. And it's a gift that God calls us to. Sabbatical observance. Observe the Sabbath. Here's the last one for us this morning, and that is sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving. Let's read verses 32 through 39. It says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have... Likewise, cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruit of our ground and the first fruit of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written 
in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring of our dough, uh, the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. And the priest of the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the, uh, the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God in supporting this mission that God has called us to. Sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving. Here's what we see. They have this commitment that we are going to give to the mission. They began obeying the Old Testament law of the tithe, which literally means a tenth. And you'll notice that they commit to even give more. So they obligate themselves to give more than what the scripture even requires them to give at that time. And so, again, for us, we should not be legalistic about this. We are not legally bound, according to the law, to give 10% anymore because we are under the law of Christ and not this law anymore. However, the principle is here for us and the example is here for us that they gave 10% and even more of what they made to the Lord. I'll say for us this, as we've seen through the book of Nehemiah, that the, the mission of God that he has set before us. It takes resources to do this mission, to see it fulfilled. It takes people saying, Jesus sacrificed much for me. I will sacrifice under that example, and I will give joyfully, cheerfully, so that people can hear about this Lord. So last Sunday night as a church, we held a family meeting, and we discussed our finances as a church. And let me just say this. It was a very encouraging time, just talking about all that God has done in the short history of our church. And what we have noticed is that year after year, God has provided for our church in amazing ways. I don't need to stand up here this morning with the thermometer and say, let's fill it in and let's get it up to here. God needs your money. God does not need your money. He doesn't need your money. I'm not going to stand up here and put on a show coerce you to give and say, if you don't give, we're not going to make it. Listen, I promise you, God is faithful. We're going to make it. But I will call you to trust God with your finances out of worship. And I will invite you in to what God is doing because what I have found is I want to lead the charge in giving. What I have found is that as I give sacrificially, man, the, the, the freedom that is found in that, the joy that is found in that, the faith that is strengthened in that as God gives and provides as we give. It's amazing. It's amazing. And they give, and they say, we're going to give, and we're going to give more than the law requires. We're going above and beyond. We're going to give sacrificially to the mission of the word. Now, notice this reoccurring word in the passage here. It's this word first. We're going to give first. We're going to give first fruits, firstborn, first, first First, first. God calls us to give him first. Not the leftovers. Not if there's some leftover, I'll, 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 
drop something to the Lord. You know, he calls us to give early, give first, give sacrificially so that you can put, put yourself in a position where you've got to watch God show up and provide. And when he does, it's amazing. Your faith is strengthened. And that's real faith when you exercise in something that tangible. It's amazing to see God provide. And God invites you to join him in the work. Let me say this. It is so evident that God is working among us. God is working among us. It's, it's just phenomenal what he is doing. Over the course of the summer of all seasons of the year, we grew by 100% as a new little church here in Boston. In the short history of our church, we've seen 47 people begin to follow Jesus. It's phenomenal. God is doing an amazing work. We've got a call, two calls this week from media outlets. We've got somebody who called and says, we want to do a radio interview about your church. We've got a TV broadcaster who says, we want to come in next Sunday and film your church next Sunday. We'll see. If they get up all on your face, I apologize. But they're recognizing God is doing a, a good work that is rare for New England. It's rare for Boston. God is moving. He's moving. And he invites you into that. He invites you into that. He says, I will move with or without you. Our God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, Acts chapter 17. He doesn't need it, but you get to be a part of it. You get to be a part of it. I get to be a part of it. So here's how we close today. We close with a call to commitment. This covenant stuff is all about a commitment to a vibrant relationship with God and his people. So the call today is to commitment. Some of us today need to first commit our hearts, our lives to Jesus. If you have not done that, I call you today, I implore you today to follow the Lord Jesus. That you would recognize your sin and your need for a Savior. That God could have said, I'm done with you. You sinned against me? I'm a holy God. Do you know who I am? But does he do that? No. He says, you sinned, but I so love you. You're my child that I come to earth as one of you. I take on great, great persecution, and I die for you so that if you would trust in my death, burial, and resurrection, you can be made right with me because he loves us. Some of us today need to enter into that kind of covenant relationship with Jesus. Call you to that. Scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you say yes to Jesus, yes to what he's done, I'm turning from sin, I'm turning to following you. That's it. It's not complicated It's not work your way to heaven and maybe you'll get there hopefully someday, maybe, who knows? It's you can know, I've trusted Jesus, he's my everything. Calling you to that. Covenant relationship with the Lord. The rest of us in here, maybe you're in that covenant relationship with the Lord, I'm calling you to faithfulness to the Lord. Continued faithfulness to God and to his bride, his people. Some people might object and say, well, I like Jesus. I just don't like the church. Jesus is great. I read about it. I love it. I don't like the church. Look around. Church is jacked up. I get that. But look, if you say, Josh, I like you. Becky, I don't like her so much. I would be like, well, you don't like me then, (laughs) right? I like you. I don't like your wife so much. What? That's what we say to Jesus. We say, I love Jesus, but I don't. I don't like the church. Listen, the church is not perfect because we're people. 
But Jesus loves his church. He loves his bride. And because he loves her and gave himself up for her, we must love her. And we must be committed to the church family. Not a perfect church family, but a church family nonetheless. Some of us need to give our lives to Christ. Some of us need to turn from sin of lack of commitment, of treating church. It's just another thing that if I have some time on the weekend, maybe I'll get there and say, no, this is more than just a gathering. I'm going to be there. But it's a family that I'm going to live this life out with. I'm going to be on mission with. And can you imagine with me if we all had this kind of commitment? If we had the kind of commitment that says, I will obey the scriptures. I will be with my family, ensure that my children are walking with the Lord. I will observe the Sabbath. I will rest and I will worship and I will be with God's people and I will give to the mission to propel the mission and see my faith grow. Imagine if we all did this. How phenomenal would that be? But the world that we live in has seen a lot of nominal Christianity. And they don't want it. They see people who say, yeah, 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 I believe that. But they don't really live it out. And so I don't blame them for not wanting it. Let's step it up. Let's be like the people here. We say, God has done a good work. He's so faithful. He could have wiped his hands of us, but we're here today by his grace, and we're going to say we're committing, we're recommitting, we're giving it all to him. That's what they do. That's what I'm calling us to. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Your word is truth. You have been so good. You have been so gracious. You've given us chance after chance after chance after chance, and now here we are. And God, I pray for people in this room today who have never given their life to Christ, that they would see the goodness and the grace of Jesus. That you would become one of us. Take on our sin and our shame on the cross. And call us to exercise trust in you and be made right. And God, I commit to you the people who They follow Jesus. They trusted in Jesus, but their commitment is vacillating. God, I ask that you would stir their hearts yet again. That they might recommit their lives to you. Understanding that you didn't stop loving them, that you're right there. And when they turn back to you, you welcome them with open arms like the parable of the prodigal son and his father. May we be committed. Do your work in us, Lord. As we sing these songs, as we respond in giving, may we be worshipful. May we display our commitment to you and to your mission and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.